0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Again, it is good to see you all this morning, and I hope that you all are doing well. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, and this morning we're going to continue some more in chapter 4. Now, we have this morning we're moving away from the burning bush. Uh, narrative we've moved away now Moses has come down off the the mountain and what we're going to hear this morning and see is how Moses is making preparations now to to go to Egypt now one of the problems sometimes in in our minds is that we and this is what I often do is is sometimes when we think of certain things and situations or or places when it comes to the Bible we want to think about what we have seen through television, or seen through media, or movies, and clearly the Exodus has been depicted in, in and among movies. But the problem with this, as well as other things that depict um, the Bible, is, is often their ina- inaccuracies, of course, there's many inaccuracies, Um, but also how they they fill in the gaps, right? So they like to creatively add so much to a story where it almost seems like it changes the story, uh, even theologically changes the story. Now, when we think about those movies, particularly about the Exodus, uh, what often happens is Moses is the main character, He's depicted as the main character. You see him from, from, from birth and, and through, his, through his life. You see those things. He becomes the, 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 the main character. He is the protagonist, right? And he's the one who gains the courage to do what is right and to deliver his people, right? So we we certainly see that. And then you have Pharaoh, right, as the antagonist of, of the story, right? And it's all well in Good in, in, in some form or fashion, but however, where it falls woefully short is the actual biblical account itself. Moses has an important role in the story. There's, there's no doubt in that, right? We, we see the story of Moses from, uh, from the beginning. Absolutely, right? And we see Aaron playing a very important role, or we're going to see Aaron play a, a very important role as Moses' sidekick. If if you allow me to say that Uh, also Pharaoh, but the main actor over and over again, the central figure in Egypt has not changed or not Egypt, but in Exodus has not changed from the rest of the Bible, from the rest of salvation history, or from the rest of history for that matter. But the main character is the Lord without the Lord. Where would Moses be? Number one, Moses would probably be dead. He would have never made it. He would have never been, in a sense, delivered through that little ark in the river. He would have been, he would have been killed. And Israel would certainly still be slaves. And so the Lord announces himself to to Moses and tells Moses, You're going to be, I'm sending you to be my deliverer, to bring out my people who are who are slaves. And most importantly, what he tells them is, to bring my people back to the mountain that they may know how to serve me. If Moses was the main character, they would become slaves to Moses. If Moses had all the power and all the authority, then they would become servants to Moses. The main character is God. Their redemption was for their worship. Now, through the word of God, he delivers his people. And we know that to be true for us. And he saved us. And in the same ways, he has saved us for his glory. He is still the main actor, even in his church today. So let's look at chapter 4. Starting read, start reading in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and they and had them, excuse me, had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you get back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you should say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way of the Lord, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephora took out a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So we let him alone, and it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of circumcision. And this is the word of the Lord. May his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. I've been starting my sermons the last couple of weeks with an opening illustration having to do with parenting and, and children, so I'm going to give you another. And that is to ask the question, what do children need? What do children need? Not want, but need. Now, how you answer that question depends on perspective, doesn't it? Depends on perspective, because from a perspective of a child, they're their desire of need or their definition of need is different from their their wants, even though they're pretty much the same thing. They want candy, pizza, limitless sugar drinks, snacks, endless entertainment and fun, newest tech and fashions and toys and definitely no chores. From a parent's perspective, we would come at it looking at the very basics. Right? We, would, we would say, OK, let's deal with the basics first, the most important things, food, shelter, clothing, um, health care, et cetera. Now, of course, we know that children need way more than just the basics, right? Because orphanages, I don't it's probably orphanages is not a very politically correct thing to say anymore, children's homes, whatever, meet these basic needs. Homes could meet basic these basic things, but parenting has way more to do than just the basics. Children need training. Children need discipline and love and teaching. They need kindness. They need gentleness. Sometimes they even need some uh, sternness, if that's a word. Compassion. They need protection. They need quality time they need education and most importantly they need god's word and they need the gospel now we can add to that list certainly and these are not the only things but these are the things that we provide for our children every day we want to give them at least pieces and portions of that every day and we meet those needs for our children as we know them and get to know them individually So it's not as easy as just do these things and just do that. And and then all these things will, um, all this will work out. It's quite a bit more complicated than that. Have a couple children and you will figure that out. But just think of the logistics of doing those things in reality. Think of the, the logistics alone of food, of having to have a job, make money, Earn that money, plan meals, go to the grocery store, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, bag the groceries, walk out, fight Walmart, deal with the receipts. Oh no, I forgot something. I got to go back in. You go home, the cooking, the putting away, the cleaning, blah, blah 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 blah. You know what I'm talking about? The everyday logistics of of doing, and that's just one of these those things. That's not that's not the quality time. Some of it is not the the education, the. Gen- now, some of those things can fit in there, but they all look, they all can certainly look different. But probably the biggest thing that children need is that they need their parents. They, they need their, their, their parents. And in a, in a Christian worldview, we, we recognize this truth from the Word of God, that the Lord created man and God created woman, and they are to get married and they are to be fruitful and multiply. Deuteronomy chapter 6 teaches us that we are to tell our children and teach our children the word of God. We are to walk with them and talk with them about it at home. And when you're walking by the way or when you're laying down or when you get up, Proverbs 22 famously says, right, train a child in the way that he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, we know this is referring certainly to spiritual training and righteousness, but certainly implied in those passages is a biblical truth that our children, yes, they absolutely need the gospel, they need Christ, but they need their parents to train them in all of these particular ways. Now, why in the world would I start off Exodus 4 like this? This is not a sermon about parenting, so what does this have to do with Exodus 4? Well, in our passage this morning, we're introduced to a glorious theme that runs throughout the Bible from here. And it goes all the way through the Bible, and that is God as Father. That is God as Father and His people as His children. Now, in Genesis, we get get small sneak peeks and, and glimpses of this idea. For example, God created Adam, and then we know in Luke's gospel, in the genealogy of Jesus, at the end it says, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam being a son of God. There's the idea this theme of God as father. But here in Exodus 4, as God said he would do, He tells Moses exactly what to say to Pharaoh. And in verse 22, he explicitly tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. And so the the absolute implication of that then is what? If Israel is the son, then who is God? God is their father. And in this passage, I want us to see three things that it is showing us about our Heavenly Father. That our Heavenly Father shows and he gives his people that we see from this text, it runs throughout the Bible. So it's not just just isolated pieces, but they run throughout the scripture. And these three things, I think, will encourage us because these same principles, again, run throughout the Bible and particularly in the New Testament. So here at the beginning of our passage... As we hear Moses making preparations to leave Midian and head to Egypt to do what the Lord has told him to do, right? We just went through the burning bush narrative, and Moses, you know, reluctantly goes, you know, is being obedient. And in these first verses here, verses 18 through 20, we hear how Moses is given the assurance of the Lord. Now, certainly God has been assuring Moses from from the beginning, right? I mean, showing his presence and how he knows and he's remembering his covenant. But in particular, we see God's reassurance. Now, we don't need to rehash um, the trepidation that Moses has in in doing this and in, in going. But Moses is still going to be God's mouthpiece. And Moses is still a man just like us. Now, in the first part of his preparation in verse 18, see what Moses does first. He goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, who we know back earlier. is actually Ruel, so same guy. And he goes to Jethro, and he tells him that he's leaving. And he tells him that, I'm going back to Egypt because I want to make sure and see if my brothers are alive. Now, and he asks for permission, right? May I go? Now, now Moses knows he has to go. He he has to go, right? I mean, that's clear. It's been said. Moses has to go. So at some point, it really doesn't matter how Jethro answers the question. If Jethro says no, then Moses still has to say, well, I obey the Lord, not you, Jethro. But Jethro, who, uh, who, who gives his permission, but Moses is still respecting this guy, isn't he, this man? He's honoring him. You can tell there's a there's a love, there's an honor for uh, of this son to his his father or his his father-in-law. And, and Jethro has given him so much, including now the the blessing and the permission to to go now in in peace. So Moses says he's wrapping up things, in meetings. he's 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 tying up all his loose ends. He's changing his you know his change of address forms and calling the electrical department and say, hey, I'm changing my thing, I'm moving, get it out of my name, that kind of stuff. He's getting everything done. I mean, he's been there for 40 years, so you got to realize there are some roots that need to be pulled, that need to be pulled up. And in verse 19, the Lord comes to Moses, and what does he do? The Lord assures Moses of his safety. Now, we don't hear the thoughts of Moses at this point, do we? We hear the Lord speaking to Moses, but we don't hear Moses' thought. But we can imagine now, considering what we know about from the burning bush, that the weight of this call of Moses is still quite heavy. It's still quite a burden to him. Especially, you know that feeling of moving, and you're telling your family, you're, you're moving, you're heading on, and you get this weight about you. If you've ever moved, you know the feeling of that kind of that hurt and that that hard. It's very hard to do. So after telling Jethro, right, he has this fear. And Jethro has been a refuge to him for 40 years. And he's going back to this place that, remember, he killed a guy, a place that still had wanted posters out for him. Just making that up like the Hollywood actors, Hollywood movies, right? And the Lord comes back and reassures him what? in a way that only he can do. And he tells them, the ones that were wanting your life, they're dead. It's dead. Meaning, you don't have to worry about that, Moses. In the New Testament, we sort of hear the same kind of language at the beginning of Matthew. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, and he told Joseph, he said, rise and take the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. God was calling Joseph and Jesus' family out of Egypt and is to back to Israel for Jesus to be the deliverer. The assurance that the Lord gives to Moses then leads to the next step, right? I mean, so take this kind of giant task that he has before him, right? Whenever we have a giant task ahead of us and we talk to someone, generally this little saying comes out, how do you eat an elephant? Well, no one eats an elephant. That should be your response. No one eats elephant, you weirdo. But how do you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one bite at a time. And and that's what he does, right? So, So now being reassured that his life will be safe He actively leaves, right? This thing that seems so hard for Moses, he actively leaves. Verse 20, Moses took his wife and his son, and he had them ride on a donkey. Again, language back forward, excuse me, to Matthew. Forward to Matthew. Back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, out of all the things that Moses has packed, so you can imagine, right? When you pack your stuff, you pack your truck, you've got all of your stuff. Out of all the things that he tells us that he packs, he tells us the three most important things to him. Number one is his wife. Don't forget your wife, Moses. Number two, his sons, right? And then again, what does he take? His staff. Take the staff. Now, again, right? So, so over and over again, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about this staff, this piece of wood. And then a staff in the story had become important to us back in two, right? This stick, this this rod that the Lord took. He threw it on the ground, right? And it turned into a serpent. And then he grabbed it by its tail and picked it up, and it turned back into the the rod. And it's going to be a sign to the people that that God has spoken to him and that he is his prophet. And then in verse 17, the the Lord specifically tells Moses at the very end of the conversation at the burning bush... Take the staff in your hand. And why? He's obediently taking it with him, but why? What's the big deal again? Because this staff is this visible way. It's a visible way for Moses to understand that he is arming himself with the power of God. And we certainly can point straight to the New Testament here of the armor of God. Of the sword of the spirit. That has been given to us. And here with Moses, the power of God will be on display by Moses with the staff to convince the the Israelites to follow him, but also will be the instrument by which the Lord uses to crush Egypt. Remember, this this has huge significance uh, significance in Egypt. Because remember that Pharaoh was thought to be a god. He was a living manifestation of two Egyptian gods, the Ra, the god of the sun, and Horus, the god of death. And both of these two gods, they, they represented Egyptian sovereignty over all other gods and everyone. And Pharaoh would have his own staff, and he would have his own scepter with the head of the, the serpent on the, on, the, on the scepter, and that represented his authority to rule unquestionably. And so Moses would soon come before Pharaoh carrying his own staff, the authority of the power of God, to which when they see him carrying this, they would recognize that this is a staff of authority. This represents something powerful. One of the major themes in Exodus, in the story of Exodus, is what we know. We know this, that God is going to square off with these false gods and he's going to put them in their place as being nothing because he is sovereign, not them. And there will be Moses and there will be Aaron standing there with this staff the whole time. The staff means something. It means the power of God with Moses. So in these these three verses, we, we hear of the Lord assuring Moses the blessing of a father, the knowledge of safety, but particularly that he is a true deliverer. However, think about Moses for a second. Moses, before he left, had to ask permission to go to Jethro. Moses had to be reassured that he would be safe, and that he has to be assured that the the power of God was going to be with him to show that and prove that he is the deliverer. Now Moses here, and what this is showing us here, is that Moses, he is the little d deliverer and little s savior, but he is not the capital D deliverer. He's not the capital S Savior. Now, I know we, we drive this point home a lot here at so- Sovereign Grace, especially since we have been in Exodus. And that is this, is that our salvation has been accomplished in every single way. There is not one small piece of our salvation that has not been accomplished perfectly in Christ alone. Now, well, number one, it's in our name, so we kind of have to say it over and over again. But we're not just making this up. When we talk about God's salvation, being in Christ alone, we're we're not just making it up. We we see it in the Bible. That is like the massive theme that just runs throughout the Bible. And it's a factor here in Exodus. Exodus. Over and over again, we see the weakness and the deficiencies and the inabilities and the weak and the and the uh, uh, the disabilities of Moses. But over and over again, we see the greatness and grandeur and the uh, the excellency and the sufficiency and the glory and the power of God to save His people. The central factor in all redemption of his people from slavery, and as we see throughout the rest of the Bible, has the same pattern for the salvation of his people, that it does not come through their works, it does not come through the law, it does not come through their lineage or heritage, but only through faith and only in the one who can deliver and save them. Capital D, capital S. Deliverer and Savior is God. So how does the Father assure us in this way? How does He he care for us in this way? Well, one way is through His through His Word. He has given us His Word because again, this is the, the great theme that's just flowing throughout the Bible to show us over and over again that you are not the Savior. You never can live up to that standard. And we need to know that because constantly as a prideful people, we need this reminder. So where is your assurance of salvation? What is it that you look toward in those moments of doubt? And in those moments of fear, right? That maybe you're not in Christ because of this or that. You have wishy-washy thoughts or these particular fruits are not fruits. Where do you look? In the moments of when you have just sinned, where do you look? When guilt and shame come rolling upon you like ocean waves, one after one. And then you hear that same voice that we've all heard. You're not a Christian. Look what you've done. You're a hypocrite. You're a deceiver. How could you be a Christian? And in that moment, in that lack of assurance, where do you look? Where do you turn? Do you turn to your fruit? On Thursday nights, we've had the great joy of been going through Romans and we've been taught very well from chapter 4. because this is the very point that the Apostle Paul is making, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is teaching the church this very thing for the church for for the ages. He says in verse 4 Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You earn your salary. You earn your, your wages. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So where is our assurance? Where is our assurance in that? Is Paul telling us to look at our works? No, he says, no, don't look at your works because your works will only go back to you. You'll go and you'll look at your, your, your wages. He says, look at the one to whom your faith is in. The one who makes us righteous. Our assurance is in Christ and in Christ alone. It is not in our good fruit. It is not in our good works. Or the lack thereof. He, as it says, he justifies the ungodly. Our Father has guided us in assurance through his word to show us over and over again that we are not our Savior, but that he is. And that by his power, by his power, we have been saved. And as Romans 8 later teaches us that we haven't been given a spirit of slavery, a spirit of slavery and of fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption. As sons, and as the spirit is bearing with us that we are children of God. That God, our heavenly father, assures us of the power that saved us. And as his children, Brothers and sisters, this is what we need to be reminded of all the time. So in the same way, but not really in the same way, Moses was assured of the Lord's power and the Lord's salvation. And so are we, reminded of the Lord's power and the Lord's salvation of his people. In the next passage, we see another thing. We see how our our Father has showed us His sovereign love. There's that word again, sovereign. And in doing so, I want, to show, I want to split these passages up, verses 21 through 23, into two parts. The first part being what the Lord has said to Moses, that is for Moses. And the second part is what the Lord says for Moses to tell Pharaoh. So the first part. What the Lord says to Moses, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So what does the Lord do? He gives him more assurance. The Lord gives him more assurance by giving him more information about what he is supposed to do and what the Lord is going to do. First, Moses is to act in the same same way as showing the miracles to the the people of of Israel. He is to take those miracles and show them, and signs, and show them to, to Pharaoh. Right? To be a way to tell Pharaoh, to let my people go. But we also see in this passage that behind the scenes, we see the sovereignty of God. And he tells them. He tells Moses that he's going to do what? That he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart to the point that Pharaoh is not going to listen to you, Moses, no matter what you do. Do these signs and miracles and all these wonders, but listen, I'm going to harden this heart where he's not going to let my people go. Now, we have to stop here for just a moment, maybe a little bit longer, and ask, The very obvious question, and that is, if that's the case, then why even go? Why even send Moses to go and do these miracles and demand Pharaoh to let his people go? But here the Lord who is sending him is also working against what he has told Moses to do by by hardening Pharaoh's heart. I mean, isn't that the obvious question? Why, Why go? Just harden his heart. And then we can go get them when they're ready, or when you're ready. Why does the Lord do this? Well, I'll make it very simple. Because the Lord has purposed for his glory to be on display. That his sovereign power and righteousness be demonstrated in the destruction and judgment of Egypt. And simultaneously, his glory to be demonstrated and dis- on display in his steadfast love and faithfulness to save his people. Was that? I don't know if that was simple or not. I'll say it again. The Lord has purpose for his glory to be on display of his sovereign power and righteousness to be demonstrated in the destruction and judgment of Egypt and his glory to be demonstrated and on display in his steadfast love and faithfulness to save his people. That is why the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's certainly a whole lot more to that. And it was like, for example, for it was also God's people to endure through that time and for them to continue to have faith and to believe with each plague that comes and and the oppression that continues, for them to continue to believe, the trust by, by faith that God would fulfill his promise and deliver them. And the reason is, is because that, that faithfulness that they will see will become the bedrock of remembering the faithfulness of God for the ages. And eventually it's gonna, we're going to see that even pointing to us, to our own salvation that comes by or comes through judgment. Now, we'll give more attention to that very important phrase as we go through Exodus because it comes up over and over and over again. And so, as we look at it each, we'll be able to understand more and more of what's happening. But just this, that the Lord God, Yahweh, the great I am, the I am who I am, is sovereign. And not just entitled, but he is absolutely, utterly, without a doubt, sovereign over everything. The whole spectacle that's been going on and that's about to happen, it shows us over and over how little man's power is. Moses' power, Pharaoh's power, but it highlights and magnifies the power of God. And it tells us over and over again, shows us that there is no one like him. Now, whether man likes it or not, the Bible believes in a God that is really and truly God. I mean, we can we can try to take shots at it, but the Bible is going to stay the same. His word and And endures forever. There is not a sparrow that falls to the ground without him. Even the roll of the dice are under his control. Proverbs 16, 33. He controls the joys of our hearts and he turns the hearts toward hatred. Psalm 4, verse 7. Psalm 105, verse 25. He creates, he recreates, he directs, and he restrains, and he is the giver of the new heart, Ezekiel 36. And so the Bible is true. God is God, and he is this sovereign ruler of the heavens and of the earth and all of his creation, which includes the hearts of all of humanity. And for his glory and for his purposes alone, here we see very specifically, he peels that back just a little bit for us to see that he has hardened the heart of Pharaoh for his glory. Now, part two of this passage is, is this is what the Lord tells Moses to tell to Pharaoh. So take this, this message now to, to Pharaoh, the one that I'm hardening, right? He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, right? There is a, there's a words of pride there, This this is my boy. This is my son. Right? I mean, this is a father bowing up to the enemy. Tell him that this is my son. And you'll let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, this is huge. And the reason why it's huge is because, like I said in the beginning, I think this is the main thrust in the heart of the passage is that the Lord God is saying that Israel is his firstborn son. And this is a massively significant statement because again, sonship just flows throughout the Bible from Adam to Abraham, to to, to here, Israel, to David, to Jesus, and now to all of his saints. And this announced sonship, Listen, it's, it's tied to how God is hardening Pharaoh's heart again in order to bring about uh, the deliverance of his people. But it's also tied to, to worship, right? Because remember, God's sons there and children, they're, they're to come back and to serve him and, and worship him. Now, ultimately, the image here of the, the my father, born son is a a prefiguring of the the firstborn among all of creation, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is preeminent in the heart of the Father, above all things and above all of creative order. But also this father-son relationship here is announcing that the relationship that God has with his people is not of natural descent. It's not of natural descent. It has a beginning in history. And it's being demonstrated in the way that the Lord is going to be to deliver them as their father. This relationship is of divine decision. Of sovereign choice and selection. Election. Sonship is by... Adoption, which is preceded by election. This is a huge part of what we understand about the word of God and about the gospel. That through justification, right? When we say justification, legally declared righteous before God based upon the work of Christ and the grace that is given to us and upon faith given to us to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And just and through justification, we have been adopted as sons. No longer slaves, Romans 8, no longer slaves, but as sons with all the rights and with all the privileges that come with being sons. And as we, 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 we read earlier, said earlier from Romans 8, and now we've been given the, the Spirit of God that is testifying to the children of God. Abba, Father, right? That we would cry out Abba, Father in remembering that He is our God, but more importantly, He is our Father because we have been adopted into His family. If you are in Christ, then you are a child of, of God. Now hold on to that for a second because we got to deal with this last part. But there's something else here that the Lord wants Moses to say to Pharaoh. He says, I will kill your firstborn because you have not listened to me. Now we have to deal with this, but essentially this isn't, this isn't just a threat. This is a promise. Pharaoh's heart was hardened So that the Lord would demonstrate his power and glory among the nations. And that meant that Pharaoh's son was going to die. This is a pre-announcement of the 10th plague. And it's going to be way worse. Because it's not just the firstborn of Pharaoh that's going to die. But all of Egypt. And this has huge implications. This whole thing, right? And the 10th plague has huge implications because that's when the Passover is is played out. But it's even pointing us to the the cross. But, But in all of this, what is the Lord saying? He is telling us that he, again, is the main cause of their deliverance, and it will be according to his sovereign plan, whether we agree or not. I mean, that's what we need to understand. Whether we or not, this is God's plan. This is how it's going to be played out. Because people want to say, they read text like this, and they say, this is harsh. This is God being a tyrant. How dare he threaten to kill someone? God would never do this. God would never judge someone like this. And if you have a worldview that is man-centered, then yeah, sure, this is your God, right? That's what you've created in your own goofy little mind, according to your own little truthy truth, right? That's your God, that he's weak and that he's ineffectual and you can just do whatever you want and he only is there to serve your desires. Again, the problem is the Bible, The Bible doesn't say that at all. In fact, it's telling you to do the exact opposite turn away from what you believe. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to croak city, death. That line of thinking, that man-centered worldview leads to death. And many have come underneath that. But the Bible paints an entirely different picture. And the picture that is being painted is this, brothers and sisters. This is the view, the side of the view I want you to see. I want you to see a loving, heavenly Father who is sovereign and powerful. And He's leveraging all of that to deliver His Son out of slavery and out of death. And from all the wickedness of Egypt, he's pulling them out. And can we not see the same things that are for us in Christ, of our heavenly Father? And He has done the same thing for us. Listen listen to this from Titus 3. But when the goodness of, and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Incarnation, Christmas, Merry Christmas. Here it is. When he appeared, verse 5, he saved us. Right? We were in slavery. We were in Egypt. And here comes the big D and the big S, uh, Savior and Deliver. He comes in. And what does he do? Let my people go. And they're gone. He saves us. But not because of the works, listen, not because of the works done by us in righteousness. There, Romans 4 again. But according to his own mercy, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, right? Being made new, he washed us and cleansed us and He by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through... Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified, all right? Remember what we just talked about? Now God declares us righteous because of the work of Christ and the righteousness of Christ, having been justified by his grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, Romans 8 has already told us that that if we are the children of God, then we are fellow heirs with God. We're heirs with God. We're heirs of God, and we're heirs with Christ. And our Father has demonstrated His sovereign love toward us, putting His Son to death. So that we could be adopted and, as sons and as heirs with Christ. Now it's okay, I want to just give this little distinction here. Because I've been saying sons, sons. And I know mean, some of you ladies may be like, hey, what about us? it's okay for us to say sons and daughters. We understand what that means, but the Bible very intentionally says sons. And it's not because it doesn't fall down to the ladies. But in that culture, traditionally, heirs to the riches of the father came through the son. And we also know that includes you because of Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so when we say sons, that includes you. Your inheritance as an heir with Christ. Our Father has demonstrated His sovereign love for His people. The price of was great. His love is glorious. And it was put on display on the cross in order to save his sons and for his sons to receive such a rich inheritance. And lastly, our Father is holy and merciful. Let's look at these last verses and read them together again. Hold your breath if you don't remember them. At the lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Okay. Then Zephora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Okay, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone and then. And it was said that she said, the bridegroom of blood, because of circumcision. <laughs> what? <laughs> you're like, all oh, the sermon's going so great! And then you get to verse 24, and you're like... <laughs> so I'm going to have to admit to you that these are some strange verses in the Bible. They're hard to explain exactly what's going on, because for the most part, we really don't know what's going on. Yet... They are in the Bible, and so therefore they are important. But I think it's also displaying for us the holiness and mercy of God. So some of the questions that we may have here, some of them we have answers to, some of them we don't, but who exactly was God going to put to death? See that in verse 24, he sought to put him to death, and why? Who's him? And then, again, more importantly, why? How was he trying to kill him? We'll Use some speculation there. Why wasn't the son of Moses circumcised already? Some of these answers, again, we just don't know, and that's okay. That's, that's okay. I think the best way to understand this passage and the best way for us to see this passage is this, and I'm going to explain it. This is my understanding. I didn't make it up, though. Is that Moses is the hymn in verse 24, right? That Moses was the one who was under divine threat of death from the Lord. And the reason was, because we see from verse 25, because of his disobedience to the Lord to not circumcise his own son. And that is a huge problem. That is a huge problem. And as a failure as a father. In verse, because in verse 25, we see what takes place, right? Moses' wife, Zipporah circumcises her son. Crazy situation. Thankfully, never mind. From Genesis 17, we know when when God tells Abraham to be circumcised and all of those with him, and his children, and his children's children, and his children's children's children, we know from there that this is part of the covenant. That God's people are to be circumcised. And if they weren't circumcised, they would be cut off. Unintended. They would be cut off from the people. Because what did they do? They broke the Lord's covenant that he made with Abraham. So if if that's the case, Moses' disobedience, the Lord was punishing Moses for breaking the covenant. Now, this whole incident, I think, is another example to us of the holiness of God and the Lord wasn't going to let Moses get away with his disobedience and to neglect that covenant sign. So again, we have to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that though our Father assures us in Christ, and he has sovereignly loved us and called us and has adopted us as sons and given this inheritance, we must also remember that our Father is holy. Our sin and our disobedience should never be treated lightly because there is not the way, that is not the way our Heavenly Father treats sin. Look what we just heard about how he's going to judge Egypt. That's not light. That's not a little thing. He is holy, but we also see in this passage God's mercy. And the reason we see God, or where we see God's mercy is, is his wife, Zephora, who took the knife and, and circumcised her son as a sign of the shedding of blood in order that Moses would be delivered from death. Now, as, as strange as these verses are, they're telling us about our Lord, right? Our, our Father, he is Holy. But also in his holiness, he is merciful. The one and only true way of salvation is in Christ. It only comes through knowing him. But every human being is a sinner who stands under the wrath of God. And like Moses, we have all failed to keep God's law. And therefore, we are subject to God's curse against our sin. And the only way to be saved from eternal death is for God's wrath to be turned aside, which can only be done through atonement, through the shedding of blood. And this is exactly as we know that this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that he shed his blood, yet he was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Offered through the shedding of his own blood. Dying in our place as a substitute. And then Jesus, in his sacrifice, he turned aside the wrath of God against our sin. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his his grace as a gift. We talked about these things already from Titus 3 through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as what? As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. And so everyone who believes in Jesus Christ We'll be saved from the wrath of God through the vicarious sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered on the cross. There's no other way for salvation. So, we end the message, the sermon this morning with the question we started with What do children need? In more particular, right, in a spiritual sense, what do the children of God need? We need his assurance. The assurance of our salvation, that it is in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. And knowing that, brothers and sisters, is freeing and liberating to the sinner. He demonstrates his sovereignty and how he loves us. Again, pointing to another text in Romans. We pretty much walked the whole Romans road, haven't we? Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sovereign love. And lastly, we are assured as his children that he is holy and yet he is merciful. As sinners, again, we're we're sinners, we're weak. The ungodly, as we just read in in Romans 5, but Christ alone is our righteousness. We only boast in him. We only plead him. And the whole point of then of us listening for the last hour or less is for us, for you, for me, to delight in our heavenly Father who has given you everything just as for his people. So they deliver them out for to come to the mountain, to serve him and to worship him as children, as God's children, as sons. He has delivered us and he has saved us that we would come and delight in Him and worship Him. So, brothers and sisters, my my exhortation to you this morning is to keep turning to Him. Keep looking to Him. Keep running to Him. Keep your heart and your eyes fixed upon Him. Keep living for His glory alone because we see from his word over and over again how he has cared for us and how he has loved us perfectly as our heavenly father and all god's people say amen